Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm here with Dr. Gerard Saussier. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. He won the 1999 Cattle Early Career Research Award from the Society of Multivariate Experimental Psychology. His research focuses on personality psychology, values, cultural psychology, moral psychology, and political Political psychology. Dr. Saussier has been a leader in developing and refining dimensional models for personality, including the Big Five, and upgrading from the Big Five to a more comprehensive Big Six model and a broader, more universal Big Two. So, and those are precisely the topics that we're going to cover today. So, Dr. Saussier, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so the first thing I would like to ask you is, uh, let's start off by really putting into perspective the historical and scientific importance of the Big Five, because I guess that really comparing to other approaches that we had before in terms of personality psychology, perhaps some of them that were put forth by uh, individual psychologists, uh, this really changed the paradigm quite a bit, right? Yes, it did. Uh, prior to the popularity of the Big Five, we had uh, numerous competing models uh, mm -hmm. by various experts or theorists, and uh, uh, the um, there was a kind of a lack of consensus on which set of... Uh, uh, characteristics we could use to organize the research. Uh, another problem was that the, for the most part these theorists were selling uh, inventories commercially so that researchers had to pay, uh, had to have a, a budget in order to, it actually was creating a lot of impediments. And so uh, when the Big Five came along I think there was a lot of hunger for a um, an agreed set of personality dimensions that researchers could uh, focus on and kind of pool their results around this kind of method. So yeah, that, that's sort of the historical context. Uh, really importantly, in the 1980s into the early 1990s, that was the context out of which it came. Mm -hmm. Okay, but uh, what, is, what was the methodology used to arrive at the Big Five? Because I've already talked with Dr. Louis Goldberg, who was really one of the pioneers in terms of this research, and he, he told me about the lexical hypothesis. But could you, could you also explain that to us here? Uh, the uh, well, there, it's really the confluence of uh, of uh, a couple of things. Uh, there were um, there were studies that found results like the Big Five without the lexical hypothesis, but it was really the the lexical approach that um, that gave it a lot of its uh, kind of compelling quality. So, uh, what is called the lexical hypothesis? Uh, uh, well, I kind of stated a little different. I call it a lexical rationale. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think well, the way people usually understand the hypothesis, the hypothesis is that uh, the most important uh, attributes in real-world social transactions will be encoded or represented in the language. Therefore, you can find out what the most important personality attributes are by studying the language. I think that's the way it's usually stated. Um, I would usually state it more as that the degree of representation that attributes have in language, that traits have in language, 
corresponds somewhat to the general importance of the attribute. So the more it's represented in language, the more likely it is to be important in real world transactions. That's just a slight change, <laughs> a, a shift there, but it's actually more the way that I would understand it. Um, the uh, Well, in order to th think about, uh, evaluate the lexical hypothesis, you have to think about what's the alternative hypothesis. Well, what's, the, what's another possibility? Well, another possibility is that we have all these, this language for talking about personality, but it's kind of useless. In other words, uh, people talk about all this stuff, but it's just superficial, has no meaning. It's not a good guide to um, the real personality differences. So that uh, if that's the case, you'd actually need to go to experts to tell you what were the important uh, things about personality. Uh, that's actually not a way out view. That corresponds a little bit with uh, how people view psychoanalysts, that they you're not going to figure out your problems yourself. You need to go to an analyst in order to figure it out. Um, same kind of idea. And uh, in the 1990s, Jack Block, there was a kind of an exchange in a major journal uh, between Goldberg and I and Jack Block um, about this, that uh, Block was arguing actually that you couldn't rely on uh, the uh, judgments of everyday people for distinguishing important attributes of uh, personality because they'd be missing too many things. They were too naive. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really that expert view is more or less the alternative. And um, so I think it, it was a, that, that was I think we had a little bit too much of the expert views before. There were all these experts. They were competing with each other and we didn't really have common ground. So uh, that's one side of it is the lexical hypothesis. The other is, is a uh, statistical technique called factor analysis that uh, takes a large number. Uh, it's a it's basically called a variable. Uh, redundancy technique or reduces the number of variables. So, you know, we have thousands of uh, terms used to describe personality. How do you reduce those down to just a few basic dimensions? Well, this is a statistical technique that's built to do that. Um, it basically analyzes the correlations among all these terms in real data and then figures out what are the basically the underlying dimensions that are causing most of the correlations. So you put those two together, you have people um, isolating uh, the terms in the dictionary that refer to personality, especially the most frequently used ones, and then turning that um, set of terms into a like a questionnaire, long questionnaire, lots of variables, then you reduce the number of variables down to a few basic dimensions using factor analysis. Mm -hmm. That's about well, as short as I can make it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, very well. Okay, so according to the lexical hypothesis, uh, the the traits of personality that people would pay more attention to, they would be encoded in their languages, right? So th does it have sort of a biological basis to it then that these people would be uh, attuned to look for certain personality traits because those would be the more relevant to their interactions or something like that? Well, there, yeah, there, it's possible that it would tend to reflect biological uh, sources of variation, but it's also possible that it reflects cultural sources of variation. So uh, we are cultural creatures as much as we are biological creatures. And so, yeah, I think you do wind up probably with a mixture there. Um, and uh, so just to contrast that, uh, consider uh, studying animals using... Um, uh, personality dimensions. 
Well, you can't go ask the animals. The animals don't have a language you can study. So people wind up, uh, some people have actually imposed the big five on animals, you know, and then look, look at the dimensions and so on. Uh, other people basically uh, argue that you need to take more of a biological approach with that. Um, but um, I guess the, the difference is that um, you kind of expect that the animals might not be aware of many of the major dimensions that, that distinguish their personalities. They don't talk about it all the time. We might expect that they could, uh, could to some degree have some not awareness. And probably there's a lot of ways in which humans vary that we're not really aware of and that we need experts to point out to us. And I think biological theories are kind of useful for pointing us to that. But there's, I think there's big pieces that we can, we can gather just by looking at the, the language people use and, and the words in that language and what content is in, those, in the languages. Mm -hmm. Yes, but here with the big five and also with the big six that we're going to talk about later in the interview, we're trying to arrive at human universals in personality psychology, right? That is personality mm -hmm. traits that occur in all cultures and all mm -hmm. languages, right? Okay. okay, sure. We're trying to. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not convinced that either the big five or the big six accomplishes that goal, mm -hmm. but that is certainly a goal. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and in what ways would you say uh, language and culture can influence how people express themselves about personality traits? Uh, well, here's a curious fact. If you look at uh, the, uh, take the, the, the terms that we most commonly use to describe ourselves and other people and personality, if you have people judge how desirable or undesirable those characteristics are, you discover that you have a kind of a bimodal distribution. There's a lot of fairly desirable ones, a lot of undesirable ones, and there's not very many that are neutral. So it's a curious kind of uh, finding. Why is that? It, it's probably because, um, uh, I don't think there's there's been research to kind of uh, delve into this enough, but it's probably because a good part of the function of personality language is to um, comment on other people's behavior and our own to some degree in a way that has to do with uh, cultural norms. Mm -hmm. So see these these uh, desire the desirability of attributes is something that we learn when we learn the language. We learn, for example, that being, maybe cruel is a bad thing and to be generous is a good thing and uh, we're really learning a culture we're learning to some degree a personality assessment system but it's also a kind of a, a nor socially normative system and so when we use personality language we're actually in some ways exercising this um, uh, inherent uh, this these inherent uh, cultural um, norms that are built into the personality language itself so that's a key way that it winds up impacting it. So what that means is if you go to a different culture where the norms are a little different, that can start having a little bit of an impact on, um, on how the personality terms are used and how they wind up being structured when you do these analyses. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so could you now tell us about the big six, how it differs from the big five, and perhaps go through each of the six traits that are considered there? 
Uh, I would say the big six is actually uh, just a uh, slight uh, variation on the big five that adds mm -hmm. one additional dimension of variation. Um, the, the major addition is that there's a factor that's labeled uh, honesty. Um, I have to know that there's two different uh, uh, kind of representations of the big six. The better known one, in fact, is the hexaco dimensions. Mm -hmm. It's uh, better known because it actually came out a little earlier and has a uh, more widely used questionnaire. Uh, the big six, actually, uh, that label is, is what I applied uh, in 2009 to a uh, structure that I found across a lot of, of these studies of language, of, of the lexicon in different languages. Um, so, uh, but that, but both of those models share a ba same basic structure, and they both have an honesty uh, factor of some kind. It's just that in the Hexaco model, it's called honesty and humility, and in the mm -hmm. Big Six model, it's called honesty and propriety, uh, social propriety. It's just a slight difference in uh, orientation there. Um, other than that, it's like the Big Five, except for some small variations in that agreeableness. Um, is uh, actually, if you look at different big five measures, they vary quite a bit on exactly what agreeableness is. Mm. And uh, the big six model is actually much more consistent about that. It, it basically um, identifies agreeableness as having to do with uh, patience versus antagonism and bad temper. And it's quite consistent about that. And the other thing that's different is that, uh, at least particularly in the Hexaco model, the uh, Emotional stability or neuroticism factor is labeled emotionality, and it's so it's a little slightly different. But um, other than that, it's pretty much uh, the big five plus one. Mm -hmm. And how did you arrive at these different approaches to some of the traits that we already had, like the like agreeableness, as you said, and also the inclusion of an extra dimension or trait as is honesty, honesty slash propriety. Uh, well, they're arrived at because in order to arrive at the big five, you simply specify in your analysis that you're going to have five mm -hmm. factors. <laughs> and in order to arrive at the big six, you specify that there are six <laughs> okay, factors. So it's as simple as that. Uh, the, uh, that's, a, that's a kind of an arbitrary setting when you run the analysis, how many factors you're going to select. And if you, uh, if you allow six factors, uh, at least in uh, many of the languages we study, the, you tend to get this pattern that includes an honesty factor. And when you run it with five factors, uh, very frequently you don't. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was just one dimension that you found in occurring in several languages that was okay. not right. accounted yeah. for by so, the big five? So the exact, uh, the uh, more exact history here would be that... Um, uh, uh, Ashton and Lee had done a, stu a study of the language of personality in the Korean language, and they found uh, something like the Big Five, but they uh, also found that they, uh, with uh, if they allowed six factors, they got a very interesting, highly interpretable dimension that they labeled as honesty. And uh, around that time, they were also doing a uh, lexical study in French using a French-Canadian sample, and they got a similar kind of result, so they, you know, they found this to be probably more than a coincidence, and they said they went and studied more languages and identified some regularities in six-factor 
results uh, that are uh, go beyond what's in the five-factor results. Now, the way I came onto that, uh, around the time they were doing uh, these studies in Korean and French, I was, uh, at the time, I was more interested in seven-factor models <laughs> because I had seen a really interesting uh, structure from a Filipino um, language study, um, and I had noticed some similarities in some other languages. And so I was kind of exploring whether you could develop a consistent seven-factor representation. But ultimately, when I put all the languages together and, and uh, compared them, I found that these two of those seven factors tended to co combine very frequently. And so that's how I got the big six. Um, the difference between uh, the language of personality origins is that Hexaco is based only on studies where they focused on personality trait descriptors narrowly understood. And I also included a number of studies where they had much wider set of variables, uh, more evaluative terms, more emotional state terms, and so on. And so I actually based the big six on somewhat more studies than the Hexaco did. But otherwise, those are actually very similar models, interchangeable. Mm -hmm. Okay. And could you, could you tell us now about the big two inventory that includes social self-regulation and dynamism? Because, I mean, I wanted to ask you if these are two completely distinct personality traits from the big five or the big six, or no. if they are somewhat related to them. Uh, no, they're not distinct. Um, and there, by the way, there is no big two inventory. No, oh, okay. I've <laughs> okay. been asked if there's a measure of this, but uh, uh, there, there have been some uh, issues with how you measure something so broad uh, well enough, and um, that hasn't been a real prior. I don't think anybody actually has a big two inventory. Uh, so the big two is what is simply what you get if instead of plugging in five or six factors to your analysis, you say, I just want two. <laughs> it's what you get. I'll say. So uh, it's as simple as that. It's, it's what you get when you allow just two factors. In fact, those factors are pretty big. They tend to be pretty big. So uh, they cover almost half as much as variant, much variance as the big five does. Um, approximately half, actually. Um, the... Um, I got interested in the big uh, two because I was interested in comparing the studies of language of the uh, personality lexicon in different languages and interested in what would correspond between one language and another. And I found actually there was a lot of differences between languages. But if you looked only at the two factor level, uh, there's a great deal of similarity. You can take virtually any language anywhere and they generate the same dimension. So to me, that is what is universal, not the big five. The big five actually varies quite a bit more between language contexts if you're talking about what the language just spontaneously produces on its own. Okay. Uh, the big two just does spontaneously get produced in every language that we've looked at so far. So this is actually more universal. Um, that criteria, I have to point out, is different than the one that's often used, like uh, Costa and McRae, with their five-factor measures. What they do is they claim uh, cross-cultural universality based on the fact that they take their measure, translate it into another language, and it still kind of functions pretty well. Mm -hmm. And then they, then they say that means it's universal. Well, I don't think that's a very strong claim because we don't know that many other inventories with different numbers of factors or structures couldn't do the same thing. 
uh, it's I'm talking here about a criterion. What does the language itself produce? You know, independent of you translating some Western model into the. Uh, and so one of the results of that is you can say that the big two is a not a culturally biased model. Very hard to argue there's any cultural bias in that. You can argue the big five is culturally biased because the places where it's been found most clearly are the languages that are originated in Northern Europe. You get away from those languages, it gets weaker. <laughs> uh, Big Six, Hixico does a little bit better on that, um, but uh, I'm, it, it does appear that when you go pretty far away from Western cultures, that the, that model also has problems. The Big Two is actually is universal. So in an earlier stage, and I'm kind of on a different track now, but I was focused a great deal on replicability. What what would be a way of understanding personality variation that you could go to any culture and it would be it worked perfectly well everywhere work the same in every place and that's where if you if you pursue that criterion i think you wind up with the big two mm -hmm. um but now i'm i've actually gotten more interested in prediction the problem with the big two is that if you're only measuring two things you're not able to predict very things very well so the big five predicts things much better than the big two um, and I've gotten more interested in models that predict better than the big five and the big six. So a lot of our recent research has been in that direction. Mm -hmm. So the strengths and the weaknesses of each of these models, the big five, the big six and the big two, have to do with the goals that we have, that is in terms of us seeking for universality or uh, uh, higher predictive ability, yeah. capacity yeah, and, and things like yes. that? Universality and higher prediction tend to be at cross purposes. It's hard to do both. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's just the way that, that, that it is in this particular domain, at least. Mm -hmm. And is there a, a sort of a general trend or a general goal th that you would like to get at with any of these models or inventories? That is, what would be the end goal? Uh, of trying to create a, a sort of universal inventory of personality traits in humans? Well, uh, you know, uh, psychology is basically an attempt to understand the mind and behavior of humans everywhere, not just in one particular cultural site. So um, the uh, part of it is just understanding the ways in which people vary that arise in any particular culture setting, that's a really important uh, finding for psychology in general, for personality, even for cultural psychology, um, for science in general. Uh, so that, that would be one kind of goal. That would be one reason why you'd want universality. Another reason why you might want universality is to minimize bias. Uh, you don't really want your measures to be ethnocentric, to be uh, biased toward one type of culture and basically um, using, for example, a Western cultural lens and imposing that on all other populations around the world. That's um, likely to lead. Well, one thing that's going to happen is that your the validity of the of the uh, assessment is going to go down as you go to non-Western context then. So it would be better to have a um, model that was developed uh, in what I call a culturally decentered model uh, way that you you uh, you you derive the model based on um, 
data from multiple very diverse uh, uh, cultural contexts, and then you're more guaranteed that it's it's not going to be biased and it's going to generalize better. Um, so that that's a that's the, I think the ultimate goal of universality. It's it's partly just the um, understanding what's common, uh, uh, something common about human psychology and minimizing bias. Uh, you want uh, another possible goal there is a comprehensiveness that you want to uh, have to capture as many distinctions as possible that are important and uh, and that are likely to be in the language. So this is a limitation, particularly of big two. It only captures two major kinds of distinctions, very big important ones, but there's only two. Um, the big five does a little better, but it's still quite limited. Um, to be more comprehensive, you might need to go to a lot more dimensions than that. And then another goal would be to be able to predict behavior based on uh, personality assessments. Uh, in, you know, important outcomes uh, having to do, say, with health mm -hmm. or uh, perhaps psychopathology or having to do with um, um, work outcomes or uh, things like this. Uh, personality measures are already used for that purpose. And uh, probably being more comprehensive, you would expect that a more comprehensive measure with more independent sources of variation would predict better. So that's why I say I'm, I don't advocate for using the big two as a predictor model because it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really focused only on the, the common denominators. Mm -hmm. And it's not likely to be the best prediction system. Mm -hmm. And would another goal be to completely capture the entirety of uh, human psychological traits and also of human uh, uh, personality variance? I, I mean, uh, is that the case that what you are, you and other people as well, of course, are trying to arrive here is to try to have a complete picture of human personality or just of the traits that are more important according to certain criteria? Um, I think it may be impossible to be complete about that. There's just too many potential distinctions and, and variables that could be small, perhaps trivial, but there's lots of things going on. I think it's just a matter of getting the most important ones mm -hmm. and um, and being a, having enough so that you're you're able to predict well. So, and in terms of how many dimensions that means you should use, well, we haven't really tested the upper limits of that yet. We don't know whether, uh, for example, uh, we uh, recent work we've done is indicating that you can predict a lot better with 20 dimensions, say, than with five or six. But we don't really uh, know um, how how far up you need to go in the number of dimensions before the gains in prediction becomes too small. Um, but definitely, um, we can definitely use more than five or six. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about prediction here, uh, what exactly are you referring to in terms of human behavior? Um, well, uh, let's see. How about if you could predict um, what people's, uh, based on their personality, what their health was likely to be like in 10 or 20 years? Would that be important? Uh, how about the possibility that um, their personality might predict uh, how long their life would be? Might that be important? Uh, how about if personality would predict um, how well they would do at jobs in general or at particular kinds of jobs? Uh, that would 
uh, would that be important? That, that's the sort of thing that uh, practical kinds of outcomes that uh, we focus on. Um, how uh, do, can it predict how well they would do in school? You know, their grades in school. Uh, you might think that that would be entirely a function of cognitive abilities, but of course it has to do also with how well well organized and hardworking people are and other kinds of factors. So, you know, um, there's a variety of different outcomes like that that would be important to predict. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, that's the difference, for example, between uh, IQ and what it predicts and uh, the predictions that we get from a score in, for example, conscientiousness. Yes, right? yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, okay. And in terms of the subcomponents that were added to the big five, the 10 aspects that I think were developed if I'm not mistaken here, by calling the young and colleagues, do you think that those 10 aspects that broke down each of the five traits into two different aspects, that they somewhat improved the big five in terms of predictive ability or universality or in, other, in any other area? Um. I don't know about universality because that uh, that's a very useful system, but it was actually developed based entirely on data from uh, the U.S., the United States. Mm -hmm. um, it's so I, I do think it would improve prediction. I can't say that it would do anything to improve universality. I think there, um, uh, Colin DeYoung himself has been uh, finding that it's breaking down uh, the Big Five into these two aspects for each of the dimensions actually helps if you're relating it to uh, neuroscience um, distinctions. Um, so that could be a useful avenue. It should basically help predict things better, but I don't think it would help necessarily with uni universality. Um, uh, like I said before, it tends to be the case that as you add more distinctions and dimensions, you get less correspondence between languages and cultures. Mm -hmm. And when you referred there to neuroscience, were you saying that perhaps the 10 aspects allow for us to better understand what are the areas of the brain that are related to processing information that is associated with each of the 10 aspects? Is that it? Yes, areas, uh, circuits in the brain, or, mm -hmm. or the volume of different par uh, 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 parts of the brain, any of those could be relevant, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, and uh, is any of these inventories, the big five, the big six, the execo, and so on, already used in uh, clinical psychology or any sort of clinical practices? Uh, yes. Um, Increasingly, I think the Big Five has started to have a lot of influence in clinical circles. In fact, um, I'm aware that uh, there's a, a prominent manual that's used for uh, diagnoses of psychopathology, the DSM, and there was uh, a lot of consideration of whether they should incorporate the Big Five factors within that, those kinds of diagnoses. I don't think it, it ultimately got built in at the last um, revision. Um, but the Big Five is actually used uh, increasingly in clinical work. The advantage of uh, Hexaco or Big Six would be that uh, that honesty dimension would tend to capture um, 
certain kinds of um, disorder tendencies a little better, particularly uh, antisocial disorder and um, narcissism, mm -hmm. which tend to uh, correspond to low end of honesty, humility, or propriety. Um, so there, there should be a little bit of an advantage there, but I don't think Hexaco has had such a big imprint uh, or the big six on um, clinical areas uh, yet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things we actually showed with the uh, in our uh, big two work was that uh, a prominent distinction in, in psychopathology is between internalizing and externalizing disorder tendencies. Internalizing ones have to do with depression and anxiety. It's like problems that people, you know it's a problem because you feel it in yourself. It's more subjective. Externalizing problems have more to do with you become a problem for other people through your impulsivity or your... Um, an, uh, being annoying or violent or, or substance abuse, things like this. And uh, the big two actually do uh, correspond somewhat to those two d basic distinctions. But I don't think that's been developed very much in the literature. Mm -hmm. And do you think that uh, any of these inventories could be used primarily to deal with psychopathology or perhaps also to help people make certain kinds of life decisions? Like, for example, uh, for example, if I know my scores in terms of the big five or the big six, uh, perhaps someone, some professional could help me uh, build a trajectory in terms of uh, occupation or something like that? Yes, yes. In fact, um, that's a, that kind of uh, angle has been developed a lot by Robert Hogan, uh, who uh, uh, has a personality inventory that has some correspondence with the Big Five, and uh, he actually, as well as having these basic kinds of Big Five-like scales, he has scales for different occupational areas and what would make you do well in those areas. Um, that's... Um, uh, just as an example, he has uh, one of his uh, scales, I believe, is called uh, something like sales orientation. Another was like customer orientation. Those are two different kinds of skills, being able to sell things, being able to interact well with customers, not necessarily the same thing. Um, and uh, those are partly based on personality uh, distinctions. Mm -hmm. And does it matter here when we're analyzing uh, perhaps how these traits get associated with certain aspects of psychopathology or how people make life decisions and so on, if they are primarily innate or also influenced by uh, life experiences or culture? Does it matter here, those aspects? Well, I'm a little careful about using the word innate because it implies mm -hmm. something biological and humans are cultural creatures. So a lot of what is very natural to us and just is, is going to be inevitably occurring is actually due to culture uh, and not to uh, biology. Um, and you also have to recognize that even though personality characteristics are uh, pretty stable, they're not perfectly stable. So people do uh, change. Uh, there's actually some predictable patterns in how people change across the lifespan in these traits. And the consistency of uh, who, say, is the most extroverted or the most agreeable at, time one, at one time point, it doesn't correspond perfectly with the same thing 10 or 20 years later. So uh, there, there is some change with these dimensions. So it can also be understood in terms of personality change as well as uh, just treating it like it's, it's telling you what you are innately like.
I mean, there's an L. It tells you what you tend to be like, but I wouldn't go so far as to say it, it that it's deterministic. <laughs> yes, they 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 are not deterministic from a biological perspective, but all of them are heritable, right? Yes, but uh, the um, you know one of the. Uh, Eric Turkheimer has proposed three laws of behavioral genetics, and one of them is everything's heritable. You can basically take any uh, certainly psychological variable. If you run a study with uh, the right uh, twin design, you'll discover there's some heritability. Uh, that's not much, um, it doesn't mean very much anymore to establish that something's heritable. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, so just one last question, and since we've been talking about culture and cultural variation and how culture might influence all of these aspects, and also perhaps the fact that the big five perhaps are more specific to uh, North America or even the Western societies, and perhaps we have a weird effect here, right? But uh, perhaps two big dimensions that vary cross-culturally are the individualistic or collecti collectivistic one. Perhaps uh, in the West, we tend to associate the West with individualism and perhaps e Eastern Asia and countries like that with collectivism. So in terms of uh, personality traits, do we know anything about how these two big cultural aspects might influence them, or at least the ways by which people express their personality under the influence of these two big cultural trends? Okay, so it has been argued that in more collectivistic societies, people there's less of an uh, expectation of consistency in people's behavior, so therefore it may be that actually personality is just marginally less important, still important, but may, maybe a little bit less important. However, I want to actually question the assumption in that kind of question, which is that somehow individualism, collectivism are the basic way we distinguish cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, this has to do with uh, some uh, my the work I do on the cultural psychology side. Um, we actually don't have ways of indivi measuring individualism, collectivism that show really large cross-cultural differences. Uh, the reason is that actually within societies, there are individualists, people who are very individualistic and others who are not. And so the, the degree to which societies differ in that actually gets dwarfed by the degree to which that varies within societies. So we've been interested in what kinds of variables might show um, bigger cross-cultural differences than individuals and collectivism using questionnaire measures. Mm -hmm. And I can just mention three that actually show bigger effects than individual and collectivism. Their countries actually differ more on these. One of them is religiousness, mm. just religious devoutness, uh, uh, religious behavior. Secondly, uh, ethno-nationalism of some kind, um, where you're kind of basing your nationalistic sentiments on uh, the notion that you're, there's something special about your people. This actually varies a good bit between societies. And uh, third, um, kind of belief in... Um, the importance of families being run by men rather than equally. <laughs> that actually has a bigger difference between cultures right now, at least, than individualism, collectivism measures do. Mm -hmm. And in what ways do those aspects influence personality traits? Well, you could argue that they are personality traits. Oh, okay. Okay, so how do you define a personality trait? Okay, so... 
uh, a consensual, uh, w widely used kind of definition would be that it's uh, stable patterns of behavior, emotion, and thinking. Okay, so these are basically just thinking patterns. They actually show stability across time. Um, so you could argue that they are just like thinking pattern aspects of personality. So, you know, if I'm um, religious, uh, Chances are, if I'm religious now, 10 years from now, I'm going to be fairly religious, too. It's actually a quite a quite stable tendency. So how is that not a personality dimension in itself? Um, so we have to, you can, you can ask, there has been research looking at how religiousness, for example, is related to personality, and it generally shows some relatively small but consistent relations with agreeableness and conscientiousness. But I would argue, actually, that it's worth considering that the tendency to um, uh, believe in and rely on supernatural powers or not is itself a personality difference. Mm -hmm. Okay, so going back to my original question, and now perhaps reformulating it yeah. a bit, uh, do we know of any aspects of culture that influence how people express their personality traits? Um, I don't think, I, I'm not convinced uh, that we have really firm evidence about that in any particular way. I can give you an anecdote, though, that's interesting. <laughs> okay, so we tend to assume in the West that somehow extroversion, introversion is a very important personality dimension. Uh, when we uh, uh, gathered descriptors from uh, languages in um, Africa, where we were uh, consulting people who lived in villages, not in cities, one of the things that kind of stood out was that uh, they didn't tend to use as many extroversion-related terms as people in the West did. And, in fact, if you run one of these studies and you do a factor analysis, the extroversion factor is very weak. It's actually quite small. Um, so what's going on there? Uh, well, okay, so if you actually look at the way that extroversion is measured, it's often measured um, by inquiring about how people behave when they're around strangers or when they're at public events or if they're to do, asked to do public speaking, they're at a party and all that. These are actually fairly culturally specific, potentially, uh, situations. So if you have a society where you don't meet a lot of strangers, there's not a lot of parties where you meet strangers, you're not asked to go out and do public speaking, why would extroversion, introversion be such a big deal? Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which the, the culture sets out a set of situations, and to some degree, personality uh, dimensions may kind of rely on a particular situation's being salient. Um, you could argue that something like morality is more universal because you don't find a society where nobody's ever trying to cheat or take advantage of anybody or be selfish. That's always going to occur. But situations of having to deal with how, many, how much you have to deal with strangers or, or um, you know, public speaking, that's actually going to vary a lot between, uh, from one culture to another. Mm -hmm. So there's a potential there for this, the cultural situation to impact what uh, personality traits are important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So, Dr. Socia, just before we go, would you like to tell people perhaps what are some of the best online resources if they want to get in touch with more of your work? Okay. Well, let's see. Um, 
I uh, I have a if you uh, do a search with some kind of search engine, you know, put my name in and psychology or Oregon University of Oregon. Uh, I do have a page on uh, uh, actually I have a set of pages on the university website where you can get um, download papers. So that's that's one kind of source. Um, and that includes some things that are hard hard to get, even if you're at an academic setting, some things, chapters and books and so on. Uh, I also, uh, I, I do actually, I am on Twitter, actually. Uh, I, some people uh, use Twitter as a way to announce all of their professional activities. I confess I haven't done that as much as some other people do. I tend to use it more as a kind of a live journal about uh, commenting on things that are coming up. But I am actually on Twitter, and you can sort of find me the same way, Gerard Saussier, Psychology. There's only one of me that's really on Twitter doing that. Um, that's a couple of ways to do that. Okay, so I will be leaving links to that in the description box of this video. And Dr. Okay. Saussier, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to be here with us today. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks much. Hi there, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started my channel last year and I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Or alternatively, you can also do it on PayPal or Subscribestar. I will leave all the links in the description box. Otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, and my first producer, Isar Webb. Thank you for